an extreme scale up. We hired a thousand people in our first year. That was across corporate, call center, and retail. You build a management team, it takes time, and then you're hiring. And then it was so nuts, that, that scale up. We had six enterprise systems that had to be implemented before launch. We were getting attacked by TELUS and public and the oligopoly the whole time in terms of trying to cut us off at the knees from actually getting a license because of foreign ownership. Hello, and welcome to the 50th episode of The Backbone. In February of 2017, I released the first episode of this podcast to feel my curiosity and demystify what finance, operations, and startups and high-growth companies was really about. I'm so grateful you've joined me on this journey ever since, and I'm extremely thankful for the feedback and support you've provided. If this is your first time listening to The Backbone, welcome! The Backbone is a podcast exploring the journey of finance and operations within tech companies. I'm your host, Shabam Data, at Shabam on Twitter. Thanks for checking it out. If you enjoy this episode or any of the others before it, I hope that you subscribe, rate, and review the show on whichever platform you're hearing this now. It goes a long way to spreading the stories of these amazing finance leaders we feature on The Backbone. On to the show today, I'm thrilled to welcome Bryce Seschuk, managing partner of Global Live Capital and previously a co-founder and CFO of Wind Mobile in Canada. Global Live Capital is a multi-asset investment company with a strong focus on the innovation economy. Wind Mobile was one of the fastest growing companies in Canada. It launched a national wireless service in 2009 and grew its revenue over six years from zero to approximately 500 million. On all metrics, it was one of the biggest scale-ups in Canada over the past 15 years. Wind Mobile was sold to Shaw Communications in early 2016 for $1.6 billion. Bryce had a front row seat as the CFO of this fascinating story, from scaling the company to its eventual exit. He sat down with me to share his key takeaways from scaling the business to launching an investment platform at Globalive. In case this wasn't impressive enough, Bryce obtained his CPACA designation out of university and co-founded his first company in 1998. He operated a number of companies, primarily in telecom. After selling Wind Mobile to Shaw in 2016, he moved to the investing side of the table and is very active in advising and mentoring founding teams as they scale and also look at non-organic growth. So that's enough for me. Let's get to Bryce Seschuk, Managing Director at Globalive Capital. Hey Bryce, thanks for joining me on The Backbone. We've got lots to get through, so why don't we dive in. Talking about your career journey and your path to where you are now, you started your career with PwC and then from there you worked on a couple of different companies before being a part of the founding team at Wind Mobile, where you served as a CFO there. So talk to me about your journey so far and how you ended up in your current role at Globalive. Thanks very much, Shubham. And it's great to be here on your podcast. Thank you for having me. So look, a quick, a quick background on my side is I grew up in Regina, Saskatchewan. I was a small town boy uh, uh, from that part of Canada. And I knew early on that I had an inclination to business as a, as a pursuit and ultimately a desire to get to a bigger city to kind of get in the middle of things. So I knew that as a young guy. 
my first opportunity presented itself, uh, and people get a little bit confused that you can do this, but you can actually join the Navy in Regina, Saskatchewan. So my first post high school summer job was actually joining the Naval Reserve, doing boot camp in Saskatchewan. And within a year of doing that, I had moved into the officer corps and I found myself in Victoria, BC on the coast, on the West coast of Canada, doing, um, doing kind of training and so on. And I got my taste of life outside of my hometown and my home province. And I also got pretty early access to a leadership role that kind of punched above the weight for the age I was at. So from there, I realized that I had my taste of freedom. I was not going back home to live with my parents and go back back to living in that province. And so what I ended up doing is actually flip coasts, staying with the Navy, and I went to Dalhousie. And in going to Dalhousie, I did a business degree, as I had kind of indicated as I wanted to do for years. I did a finance degree. And as what I say to people, I graduated in 1994, is... When I did my business degree, I cannot remember the word entrepreneur being articulated over the course of my degree, which is astounding to people, obviously, in the current era, given the advancement in how we think about entrepreneurial and business education. But so be it. So be it. That's how the times were. And what happened when I graduated is people wanted to get one of about four jobs, iBanking trading, so working for the banks. Um Strategic consulting was a very sexy area. Uh, consumer product goods marketing was very popular. And I would say second tier was accounting. And in, I, coming out of 94 in Canada, for those who remember, there was a, a bit of a recession we were coming out of. It was a tough job market. And I ended up not really resonating personally with the finance side of, of the firms, the banks and so on. I resonated a lot more with the accounting firms. And I got a job with a predecessor to PwC. And I came to Toronto and I, I basically did my requisite two years auditing financial institutions. And then I hopped into consulting within the firm and did a couple of years of consulting to those same institutions. Spectacular learning experience and really grounded my uh, and gave me a framework, a, a thought process and all of that and exposure to uh, some very big clients. Goldman Sachs would be one that everyone would know um, as a particular name and many others. As your guests will know, in the mid-90s, we had probably the most instrumental event of my career to that point, and that was the invention of the Netscape browser and the commercialization of the consumer internet. And what that did beyond the rise of the internet is, is it created a mechanism to start businesses much differently than, than before. New business models arose, like as we all know, this happened again with mobile and more recent eras, but that was a big deal and a change to the entire entrepreneurial landscape really of the world when that came out. I'm at PwC pretty happy and then some part, ultimate business partners and I get together and we start what is you know now called a side hustle within the firms with a web 1.0 business. People would laugh at how rudimentary it was now, but basically an investor relations concept for early, uh, you know, in, in the early internet era. Um, and we rode the dot-com 1.0 up. And, you know, as the world goes, we also rode it down. We had a bit of a flame out ultimately. I licked my wounds. Many others did the same. I had to get back into the workforce so my wife would not solely be eating craft dinner. Um, I got a finance job for a couple of years. And then in 2003, a very serendipitous event happened for me. And that is the meeting of 
my current business partner, Tony Lacavera. And you know, the way it happened, it's kind of funny. It was through a recruiter. Tony had founded a company called Global Live Communications back in 98. And literally the true classic startup story. Graduated from university, could not work for anyone else. Started, saw, saw a regulatory dislocation opportunity, started a business. It did four grand in revenue in 98. By 03, he had it up to about 33 million in rev and was looking to professionalize and scale his management team. A lot of these terms didn't exist back then, but we all know them now. So I joined, two others joined, and in 03, we put together what I'm very proud of, a quite, quite a management team. I got equity ownership pretty quickly and became a, a true equity partner. And we built that business from 33 million in 03 up to 120 million in 07 through M&A as well as organic. And, um, wow. you know, I'm very proud to say that we did it basically without raising equity. So I think the cumulative equity in that business was about 12 or 13 million bucks. It was, you know, it was a services and tech business. So there was cash flow. We raised debt and we acquired with debt and, and internal cash and so on. So it was quite a different story than you hear about a lot of the venture back stuff of the current era, but it was an unbelievable experience. And then in late 2007, we had now kind of reached our peak of, of integration and kind of coming out of a, a lot of an acquisition spree. The government of Canada decided that they wanted to introduce competition to the telecom oligopoly, the wireless telecom oligopoly in Canada. We saw this as the kind of the opportunity of our lives, in particular because anyone wanting to, uh, to enter this area had to have a Canadian partner due to certain regulations. So we built a business plan, we scoured the world for capital, and in very early 08, we met an Egyptian billionaire, we partnered with him, and we started Win Canada. And from 08 to 15, we took a very hard run at building a national wireless company, and we fought kind of every fight that we'll probably talk a little bit more about, and scaled as rapidly yeah. business as I can think of in Canada. So that is our journey, and you know we did have liquidity in 16 and we can talk about a little bit about that, you know, as you see fit. Yeah, definitely. There's a lot to dig into there. And, and I'm, you know, really excited to uh, get more into that. But before we do, tell me a bit more about a global live and your focus area there today. It's funny when you have liquidity and, you know, you obviously have experience with some of this stuff as well. But at the start of 2016, between wind and non-wireless telecom, we probably were close to 2,000 employees. We were, you know, working hard every single day, kind of, you know, making the donuts and doing what you do in an operating business. And then in 2016, we have these various liquidity events such that by the end of the year, we were actually down to eight people and a bunch of liquidity and just trying to figure out how to best move forward next. And we looked at, do we start another operating business? Do we invest? How do we invest? What do we do next? And what we decided to do is uh, basically build an investment platform. And we used, so we, we, you know, you've got a bunch of operating guys with some finance experience, some angel investing experience, but with now a lot of capital. And we, we took a hard focus on properly building an investment platform using family office principles in general, so asset allocation, diversification, so, you know, fee management, tactic, mm -hmm. all this kind of stuff. And 
What we do differently, I think, than any other family office I've met in Canada is because of our backgrounds and because of our belief in the innovation economy as the future of prosperity of our country, we over-index massively in our asset allocation to venture and the innovation economy. So I think to give you a stat, the average family office in Canada uh, invests between 0 and 2% of their assets in, in tech media telecom, and we would be multiples of this. So for me, it's actually really interesting. I spent 22-odd or 23-odd years building a career in scaling, operating you know, telecom and tech businesses, and then suddenly I went to the other side of the table and had to really build a new career and a new skill set that was around becoming a effectively a professional investor. I get to quarterback that platform. I deal with all of our asset classes. I meet super interesting people and super interesting areas of the economy. And it's awesome. So it was, it was uh, you know, so our focus is that. And it, it, it was a beautiful thing to be able to move to that. Actually, it's such a great segue into what I was going to ask you next. As you alluded to, you've had such a fascinating career journey and been on multiple sides of the table from being an operator, an entrepreneur, and now an investor. What have been your biggest takeaways and learnings as a finance leader and an entrepreneur that you're now leveraging as an investor? So what I would say to that is, um, I think being an operator Okay, and being a scale operator prepares you with a certain lens when you move to the other side of the table as an investor, and you can hear, you know, you, you, the range of what that does for your skill set as an investor is as as simple as having founder empathy to as complicated as actually having sat in the chair, dealt with the human issues, dealt with the product issues, dealt with the commercial traction issues, dealt with the capital raising issues as the person on the side of the table getting, you know, get it, facing those crises every day and, and kind of having to build and having to kind of step function build and so on and so forth. And it creates an amazing context, also an amazing temperament, I would argue, with how one interacts as an investor with founders. And as you know, well, there are many investors, venture capital firms, institutional VCs, and so on, that basically require operating experience at a part to, you know, to become a partner. And there's reasons for that. And, you know, I came at it as purely an operator, not really thinking about being an investor. And so I came at it a little bit of a different way, rather than maybe starting as an investor, going into operations to get that experience, and then coming back. And but it's, it's kind of the same analog where all of those attributes applied to investor make you a better investor. In a world today where there's a lot of capital, uh, the check itself cashes the same way. And so if you're able to empathize with the entrepreneur, if you're able to bring additional value to the table, that's definitely important. Um, what are some of the things that you know now as an investor that you wish you knew as a finance leader and operator? Yeah, so this is actually kind of funny, and one would argue that it's kind of backwards to say this, but it's just the way the world really worked, for me anyway. And probably one of my biggest takeaways is um, is when you become an investor, one thing that happens is you have this massive ingestion process of entrepreneurs coming through with deals and with opportunities, and, and your network is bringing you deals and opportunities, and I'm crossing asset classes and so on. So what I found is that, and I'm, a, I'm an accountant, right? I'm a framework guy. I love systems and frameworks. So I have built a sequence of frameworks to allow me to quickly assess, 
deals that come in through the door. And then ultimately those frameworks turn into how we do diligence and how we make investment committee style decisions. What I would say to you is that I really wish I had looked at those frameworks, created those frameworks, understood or done the research to build those frameworks um, when I was young as an operator. And to give you a simple example, all of us know about Jim Collins and his research, good to great, built to last, the fly, turning the flywheel, all these kinds of things. I learned a lot about that after becoming an investor, read a lot of that stuff more than I would have beforehand. You know, it took me right back to so many operating uh, uh, situations that we face that I would have loved to have that context when I was actually operating. And, you know, you do it with common sense at the time, but to actually have framework like that would have been useful. I, I just, for whatever reason, I was not the guy that, that kind of went down that frame, that type of framework route when I was operating. Maybe we were too busy. Maybe we were focused on other things, whatever it is. But Collins is an example. Andy Grove and his book, Horowitz and some of his more recent stuff. This is all awesome framework driven. I think the, the, the lesson there is there's a need for system and methodology and investment. It requires deep thought, thesis approaches, checklists, and ultimately a gut check. That is all enhanced with operating experience, but the act of putting frameworks and systems around it are, are clear and mm-hmm. required. And the other, thing, the other thing that I would say that I would, I, I, I've learned, maybe, maybe it's not even moving as an investor, it's more as I've gotten a little older and seen a lot more, is there is a need to systematize what I call an assessment of failure. Okay. And what I mean by that, and maybe I've seen it more in the investment side, because, you know, when you start investing in venture, you do have to accept a risk profile that that does result in failure of investment. Um, What I have, what I say to people is there's a risk that you run when operating a business, an entrepreneur starting a business kind of building that requires one, in my opinion, to on a cadence basis, periodic, pick a year as an example systematize an assessment of failure. And the, the what you're trying to do is you're trying to look periodically and ensure that you are spending time wisely and ruthlessly and you confront facts and so on to make sure that you are net advancing your situation. It can be your life. It can be your financial mm-hmm. thing. It could be your company. And you need a net positive when you take success less Incremental success, less incremental failure, however you decide to manage it, you need to consciously assess it. And if it's not net positive, so if it is net negative for periods of time that become concerning and wrenching, probably worth a sanity check as to whether you're doing the right things. And ultimately, there's no, you know, there is a very um, calculated approach to saying, I, you know, I can wake up 10 years from now. And I'm running a business that kind of is sideways and hasn't done much. And I've just killed my peak earning years. So that would be another learning that I have that I, I, I like to kind of articulate to people. I think that's uh, you know applicable regardless of whether you're a finance leader or, or something else. I think that's just uh, relatable to, to anyone uh, in, in their career journey. So uh, that's awesome. Thanks for sharing that. Um, I want to chat now about Win Mobile, or now known as Freedom Mobile, to to, to many. Um, it's it's such an amazing scale up story, and so you know you you got into some of these numbers earlier, and I was taking some notes, but uh, correct me on these numbers if I was wrong. So the company had twelve hundred employees, nine hundred thousand subscribers, and generated approximately five hundred million in revenue and eight eighty million in EBITDA 
uh, to boot in 2015. And so then, as you alluded to earlier, the company was sold to Shaw Communications for approximately $1.6 billion in December of 2015. So now talk to me about that sale process to Shaw and what were your biggest takeaways from a multi-billion dollar sale? Yeah, absolutely. So let me start by saying that WinMobile, so so the, the metrics that you use were pretty much bang on in the 2015 kind of culmination of our uh, our work on, with that deal. Um, to give you, a, a, to, to kind of take it back a little bit, when we launched, we launched in December of 09 in Toronto and Calgary. We did about eight hundred thousand in revenue in 09. Um, and again, we grew it to about five hundred million in twenty fifteen. So, I believe that that is one of the true scale businesses in Canada in Canadian history uh, for tech media telecom. Um, I think you know you can compare it to BlackBerry, you can compare it to Shopify and some others, and it's in that world. Um, speed of of uh, kind of revenue growth and so on and so forth. It was also an extraordinarily complicated and I think somewhat unique story in business. It The company formed as a result of a regulatory dislocation, so forced competition into an oligopoly. There were investment restrictions on foreigners into Canada, which made it extraordinarily difficult to find the size of capital needed to build a true national wireless company. We found probably one of the most unique individuals in the world that could fit that profile, this Egyptian billionaire who had... The, who had a unique risk tolerance and the ability to kind of make command decisions on his own as it related to the project. It was an extreme scale up. We literally, Shuban, I, I kid you not, we hired a thousand people in our first year. And that was- That's crazy. That, that was across corporate, call center, and retail. And we were doing that, you know, you, 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 you build a management team, it takes time, and then you're hiring. And then it was so nuts, that, that scale up. We had- six enterprise systems that had to be implemented before launch. We were getting attacked by TELUS and public and the oligopoly the whole time in terms of trying to cut us off at the knees from actually getting a license because of foreign ownership. Uh, there were some bad policy decisions, I got to say, you know, no one comes out of this clean and the government made some mistakes, um, you know, and the list goes on and on. other new entrants came in and there was a bit of a race to the bottom for price. We had to build a mm-hmm. culture in the midst of all of this. So, it was nuts. And in, in all of that, we almost lost the company a few times. We almost went bankrupt. We had monitors in our office prepping for a filing at the same time as we were looking for recapitalization. If we look at that, kind of, if we come back to your main question around exit, so we had, you know, we started with uh, ourselves as, as one shareholder base, and then we had the Egyptian billionaire as our other shareholder base. He ended up selling his interest in Win Canada to a Russian-Norwegian company called Vimplecom, domiciled in Amsterdam uh, partway through the project. So we found ourselves partway through with a new foreign partner um, that we continued to work with for a period of time. And then again, before any kind of sale, we actually had another recapitalization event where we brought in more North American investors that were far more acceptable to the government and kind of allowed us to reset the deck from some debt we had and some other issues. You go through all of that and Um, you get finally some wins that happen on a policy basis. You kind of get some failure of other new entrants and you kind of, you get this company that by 2015 now has a cohesive capital structure. It has, it is the emerged winner of the new entrants and it's starting to really hit stride as it relates to operating leverage. So take all of that as a package and then 
look at a company like Shaw. So Western Canada, cable operator, triple play, not quad play. It sold TV, mm-hmm. high-speed internet, and home phone. Um, it was missing the core technology of the future, which is wireless. So Shaw is a very astute company. They saw the deficiency in their organization. They got very smart with, with cashing up through some asset sales. And in the fall of 2015, they came to us and our shareholders and they said, we need a wireless strategy. We understand, you know, you guys have spent X number of years fighting the fight, building this package and we will pay for it. We understand, you know, the, the, the cost of the entry point that we're coming in. And, you know, it was not crazy. I mean, they, they knew what they wanted. Uh, of course, there's a bid and ask. There's negotiation that happens. We had some complexity with the fact that it's a regulated business, but they were telecom already, so very acceptable to the government. And we had a couple of other complexities with other bidding groups and so on. But when it all, when the rubber all hit the road, you know, in a number of months, a few months, we were negotiated, we were announced. And then we went through a plan of arrangement process in Canada and we closed that thing on March 1 and, uh, and kind of that, you know, and the money flowed, as they say. So I don't, I, what I would say to you is the interesting thing about wind is not some very complex, unique M&A at the end. The, the, the interesting thing about wind is the complexity of, call it the capital structure over, cor- over the course of the company alongside all the operating stuff that I talked about. And the end was kind of almost anticlimactic. A Canadian, uh, you know, uh, second cable co, effectively second level cable co, needing to enter wireless for the future. First of all, what an incredible journey, right? And and if you think back to when you were getting started uh, with Tony and how he was assembling the initial management team to operationalize the the management team, as you mentioned, could you have ever imagined that you know this would have been the run that you would go on? Honestly, could not. I knew, look. I'll tell you what I what I would say is when I met Tony, I saw something interesting and candidly quite amazing. I saw a young guy who was on a on a very very good trajectory, who was extraordinarily good at three or four things that I wasn't. So great compliment, and um, and a man who had true ambition and uh, interest in kind of making change, and. So that's a great package to enter a a business relationship with. And I knew that we were going to do something pretty interesting. And, you know, if I, if I go back to that time and I say in 2007, we had done something interesting. We'd grown this business to 120. As I mentioned, we were uh, feeling pretty good about the world and we were ready to go to our next, uh, next adventure. And I could never have envisioned the sequence of events the regulatory dislocation opportunity, and then the you know the meeting of the the Nagib Sawaris and his unique attributes, and then everything that happened thereafter. It was serendipitous. It was lucky. It was partly created luck with networking and some of the skills we had built, but we had to have already done something of some size before we could have done it. So there, there's just a an extraordinary uh, set of circumstances that come together, and I mean maybe. We, we would say that about 
Shopify. Maybe we would say that about BlackBerry and so on. I think we probably would to a degree. This one definitely had those attributes. That's that's incredible. I think we can jam on this all day, but for the interests of time, I, I did want to switch gears a bit and uh, talk about your your current role today. So, you know, as we see more and more private capital out there, it seems like everyone has a fund or money to invest. And having set up Global Live Capital. What are some of the best practices of setting up an investment platform? And then as a follow-up, as an entrepreneur today, you have many sources of capital to raise from. Drawing upon your experiences at Wind, apart from the cash raised, because as I mentioned, uh, all checks cash the same, what would you say is the most important consideration? All great questions. So let me, let me unpack that first one around setting up an investment platform. And I'm going to do it in a specific way, and that is how uh, we have set up Global Life Capital, which I will tell you is family office principles, not solely venture complex type principles. Okay, um, venture is an aspect of, of a family office investment platform. It is an asset within an asset allocation set of categories. So I actually take a bigger step back and I say, how do I just think about in general um, uh, setting up an investment platform? And I'll tell you what I did. When we, when we received our liquidity, we actually locked most of it up in a GIC equivalent such that we wouldn't do irrational things quickly, that we would actually force ourselves to take a step back and really be thoughtful about what we set up. And so what I ended up doing is I, you know, I did what probably a lot of us would do is I just, I started reading and networking in the domain of family office, investment, investment best practices, um, pension plan with some of the largest, most sophisticated global investors and how they think about the world and so on. And I've broken it up into five areas and I'm going to move very quickly. But the first one, which is the one that I had to spend the most time on and, and really kind of focus my attention and efforts and is probably counterintuitive to many, and that is investment behavior. And what I found when I, and, and look, we are all investors in our own way. We have savings accounts, RRSPs, uh, you know, whatever it is. We're building ultimately for a future where we're, we're probably not going to work and we're going to retire. So we are all inherently investors. And I can tell you that I have made every single mistake as an individual in the investment world. I've, I've, I've chased fast money opportunities. I've listened to tips that make no sense. I had no frameworks. My asset allocation was a disaster. And the list goes on and on and on. So I actually had a good starting point, having made every mistake, you know, 20 plus years into my career to try to, you know, knock around my head to get away from that kind of behavior. And what I found, and I'm not kidding you when I say over 50% of the work that I did to build out this investment platform has been to work around understanding investment behavior. Some call it heuristics, you know, our base instincts as humans, others cognitive biases, all these things that ingrain us to make the wrong decisions as it relates to investment with noble intent. Okay. And I tell you, mm -hmm. Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger, let's put those guys up on a pedestal as as good as it gets in the investment world. And that's where they spend their time thinking about the world is not falling prey to things that fall out of, out of the framework, if I can say it that way. So number one, fundamental foundational investment concept is getting an understanding of investment behavior and, 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 you know, not doing it wrong, not behaving wrong and following all the, all the bad habits. Uh, 
Then you can, once you've kind of get your head around that, you start thinking foundationally about that, then you can get a bit more mechanical. Okay, so let's talk about asset allocation. That would be my next level. How do we take a pool of capital and carve it up into different asset classes with a view to ultimately diversification and what the finance guys would call efficient frontier type investing? So what did I do? I went out and I said, who are the best investors in the world? And it turns out from a, from a broader asset allocation perspective, it is actually the global pension plans. And interestingly, Canada indexes very well on that scale with CPP, with the case, with teachers, with OMERS and these types of guys. And I went out and I looked at all these uh, investment institutional investment complexes. And what I said is I want to take their principles and I want to apply it to a smaller capital base. And if I could summarize what that really means is it means often a big liquidity trade to move into alternate asset classes such as PE, real estate, and venture, figure out how to do it with smaller capital than what these guys have and do it smartly. And that was kind of our, our uh, it's not an innovation, but that was our slant on asset allocation. And then the next three below that, so the hmm. first being behavior, the second being allocation, are really quite, uh, quite mechanical. So the third is fees. As we all know, fees are a killer of investment returns, and which is why the rise of passive investing has occurred and so on. Um, we got very focused quickly on only paying fees for value, significant value-added activity, which we sorted out. Now, number four, which is almost the end of the process, is actually security selection. So it's kind of interesting to me. You One, one would think when you start investing, oh, I got to hop in and I got to figure, should I invest in this SaaS business or should I invest in Shopify, the public company and so on? And in fact, that's fourth on the list as to who you actually invest in and how you make individual selections. Okay. So that world, we'll call it fourth. And then, and we put frameworks in place for each of our asset classes to be as effective as we could on that and so on and so forth. And then last but not least is taxes and optimizing your tax planning. So if I could summarize for you, at a macro level, from a framework and process standpoint, we built, we took those five steps in a pyramid and we used that to build the investment platform that we have today. Your second question, which was around cap, kind of all cap, checks cash the same, and how does one think about raising capital? So on the other side of the table, I speak about this a lot and I'll tell you what I think. And I look at how the ecosystem and fundraising has evolved. I actually teach uh, a course each Founder Institute cohort on fundraising, equity, and, and kind of capital raising. And to pick three or four points that I think are relevant quickly, number one is I believe personally in the concept of strategic capital and systematic fundraising. We find the best CEOs recognize that are really trying to build scale businesses. So I'm not talking about cash flow generators that are services, but I'm talking venture-backed, fast growers. The best CEOs fundraise like they're doing enterprise sales in an extraordinarily systematic way, relationship-driven, top of wide funnel, all the way down to closes, and they will spend up to 33% of their time over long periods of time continuously interacting with the investment community. And if you take those funnel building concepts and you apply it to fundraising, you have a large enough sample size such that you will find investors, you will, you know, you will take enough shots on the net that you will score, you will find like-minded investors that resonate with you, your company, your stage, your growth profile, your goals, objectives, your future fundraising needs, your founder empathy requirements, and all of that. And my favorite example, and I'm going to give one, 
is we were long-term shareholders in Touch Bistro, well-known in the Canadian ecosystem, restaurant point-of-sale software. Alex Barati, mm-hmm. the CEO of Touch Bistro, CEO and founder of Touch Bistro, is the best venture fundraising CEO I've met in my career as an investor. He said to me once, he said, my average time from meeting a possible investor to getting them to write a check is two years for true enterprise sales concept. And you could imagine how many yeah, and you could imagine how many investors he meets at the top of the funnel versus what he actually closes. I think the man spends one third of his time on shareholder, both prospecting and managing existing shareholders over the life cycle of Touch Bistro over the last number of years. And that is how I think one needs to think about fundraising. That's incredible. So many things to, you know, dive into and unpack. But unfortunately, for the, you know, the sake of time, maybe we've got to do a part two of this. Um, what, I'd, what I'd love to do now, anytime, my friend, anytime. what I'd love to do now is jump into a quick fire round. And the way this works is I'll ask you some questions, you have 10 to 15 seconds to respond to each. How does that sound? Perfect. All right. So what is your go to online resource for all things finance or investor related? I work in expanding circles of material. So I this is not earth shattering. But I have eight to nine key websites that are up on my desk at all times that give me the current stuff, the news, the flow, the Twitter, and who I follow on Twitter and all that mm-hmm. stuff. And then I work out from there, and I do have, I still have paper and magazines for longer form. I do do podcasts for free, deep. I can't believe the expertise on podcasts that is out there. For, it's it's changed my it's changed my game. And then of course you need long form reading and substantive learning. So I will get into, it's important to have an old school non e-reader book beside your bed and read that. And it can cover finance, biographies, leadership, whatever your cases are, but you've got to have a broad spectrum of different styles of learning and, uh, and information resources. What's your favorite productivity hack? Favorite productivity hack for me is a home gym. I do have a gym membership and I could still make excuses for not working out with a gym membership because I had to go somewhere. Exercise to me is critical to keep a clear mind and I put yeah. a home gym in to eliminate the last excuse that I had to exercise. I haven't, haven't quite heard that one before. So I always <laughs> like when I hear new responses, which is great. But what's one thing you don't leave the office before finishing? I don't have an EA. Some people get surprised by that, but I have never been good at using someone to do my calendar and to do my travel and so on. For whatever reason, I do it myself. So what I do each day is I have, you know, the same stream that we all have of craziness, referrals, this, that, and the other thing. Mm -hmm. I make sure before I leave that I've cleared all of my meeting requests and my referrals for meetings by the end of the day. And that is a a, a gospel for me. So that's critical. What's what's one jargon that makes you cringe? So I think I've heard it all, as have many. The jargon that I currently find most tiresome and quite annoying is we've had this running discussion about when the next recession will come. And the jargon ranges from we're in the late stages of the baseball game, we're in the eighth inning, we're in the ninth inning, we're in the top or the bottom of the ninth, or no business cycle dies of old age and all this kind of stuff that you hear about. The reality is is all these talking heads and so on have no idea. And I just get tired of of hearing these guys try to talk and predict and kind of almost say the same thing. For sure. And and last but not least, what's the best advice you received so far in your career? Okay, so I'm going to hit three and I'm going to do it in 20 seconds. So the first one is the importance of networking 
and never knowing what connection will lead to what outcome, but keeping maximum optionality across connections. And the best example of this I can use is that sometimes you take a meeting and you're like, why am I doing this? This is a waste of my time. This person is gonna add no value, blah, 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 blah. That is a mistaken attitude. We have had the most surprising upsides come from the people we least expected. The second thing I would say is always be reasonable and respectful as relationships are the most important thing. Ties back to networking. People will remember negative behavior and we are humans and we need to treat each other like humans and walk in each other's shoes. Mm -hmm. Last but not least, there's an old saying, I think it's a buffet. When the tide goes out, we will see who's swimming naked. One must stay grounded when times are good to be ready for when times are bad. And candidly, in our world, the largest opportunities have arisen when times are bad and you are in a position to capitalize on them. Wow. What a great way to, to end this conversation. Uh, Bryce, it's been a pleasure. Uh, learned a ton, obviously, chatting about your experiences of scaling uh, wind mobile here in Canada, probably one of the fastest growing uh, scale ups that we've had so far to date, taking away some of your learnings and thinking about how to start and grow an investment platform like you are now at Global Live Capital. I really enjoyed this chat. And I think we're gonna have to find some time to do a part two. I'm looking forward to it. You got me anytime. And I'm very glad that you're doing this. And I, if you don't mind, I'm going to say one last thing. If any of your listeners are interested, please hit me on LinkedIn. And I'm very, very happy to connect on, on all things that we've talked about. Awesome. And you'll find a link to that in the show notes as well. So we'll, we'll, get, uh, we'll get folks over to you, Bryce. No worries about that. <laughs> Spectacular. Have a lovely day. And thanks again. Awesome. Take care. Bye now. Bye-bye. And that wraps up another episode of The Backbone. What an awesome discussion with Bryce Seschuk, Managing Director at Global Live Capital. Check out some of the other awesome finance leaders featured on The Backbone from companies like Ecobee, Wealthsimple, League, and many more. I hope you'll join me on the next 50 episodes of The Backbone. Thank you for listening all the way through. Until next time, take care.